The Hope Project. On this podcast, we talk about matters of sex, sexuality, sexual shame, purity, and how that all relates to Jesus and God. We hope that through this podcast, you'd be able to recapture the beauty of sexuality. Journey with us as we seek to better understand sex and find freedom along the way. This podcast is a part of season one. And if you haven't yet listened to the trailer for season one, I recommend you do that now before listening to this podcast. This episode is part two of a two-part conversation with Eugene. If you haven't yet listened to part one of this conversation, I recommend you do that now as this conversation will pick up right where that one left off. Today on the podcast, we have Eugene joining us. We're going to be talking about sexual assault and consent and a lot of things that pertain to that. And so if you are a victim of that or a survivor of that, I would just encourage you to, to take some time to think about if you want to listen to this episode. We might be triggering some things in you. We might be bringing some things up. Um, and if you haven't fully processed some of the aspects of your experience or some of the things that have happened to you, then maybe this isn't the best episode to listen to. Regardless, I leave that up to your discretion, um, and I really hope that this can bless you in, in what you are trying to do in your healing process. So let's dive on in. Switching gears a little bit, um, thinking of the Me Too movement, thinking of kind of celebrities and politicians and all these people getting accused of sexual assault. I know a lot of people, it's kind of like the reality of sexual assault or sexual violence is that it's kind of a he said, she said, we'll never really know. Should we really believe these women that are coming forward or these men that are coming forward? Um, And so the question I kind of want to pose to you is that how often do women or men make up the lie in a sense to get money or power or whatever status or fame Um, how often does it actually happen it's the research consistently bears out that it's extremely rare Mm -hmm. um this the the surveys and studies i've i've seen and there are a bunch of them put it the false reporting rate at um two to eight percent in that range and um it's that's comparable to all other major categories of crime. Mm-hmm. We tend not to, when somebody says, oh, somebody broke into our house, we tend not to say, well, let's hear, let's talk to the burglar. <laughs> yeah, let's see what he said. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, we, we still tend to give the, the person whose house was broken into, um, our default is to give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. And, and so I feel like that's what we need to do with people who report that they've been assaulted, sexually raped, whatever, that, that it's, that we, that our default setting is to give them the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. even if it's just their word against the the the, the person that uh, is alleged to have done it. Mm-hmm. Now, if details come out and it really just it becomes clear that it didn't it didn't happen, th- and that's true, it does happen. Um, false reporting does happen, and, and it's very destructive. Mm-hmm. Partly because it feeds, it hurts somebody who's innocent. It hurts, yeah, it hurts real victims. It, it, it can really devastate a reputation, and um, it also makes other people who report makes people more skeptical of them because mm-hmm. you know what if they're like the person that made it up. A uh, one incident that gets mentioned a lot is the Duke Lacrosse situation yeah. from several years yeah. back, and and those things happen, and they are bad. It is it is terrible that somebody's you know an innocent person's reputation is sullied that way. Um, but the default setting, I think, needs to be that um, overwhelmingly that people who come and report it are are doing it truthfully, mm-hmm. and 
we we have to really take into account the nature, the psychological and neurological um, nature of trauma also, because sometimes people will say, well, her story doesn't match up to what she initially told the police or mm-hmm. what she initially said. Um, that, that actually is not uncommon um, for, because if it's a traumatic experience, yeah. Yeah. then the nature of trauma, it's just like battle and warfare. People will remember things um, that they didn't remember before, or things will kind of get blurred in their yeah. memory, or Be- forget things that they initially remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it's not uncommon. Um, there, there, I've seen some good um, dramatizations. Not good in the sense that it's. I mean, it's it's all very heavy material and it's terrible things, but some fairly accurate portrayals in media of of rape and sexual violence that that show kind of what a victim is going through or seeing there's one episode of mad men where a woman she's at work and her fiance forces himself on her she doesn't Mm -hmm. want to do it at work Mm -hmm. but he wants to and he forces himself on her and eventually she just kind of gives in and you can tell that she doesn't want any part of this but um but she's like okay let's get this thing over with and um but at some point while he's taking advantage of her um she she focuses in on i think it's either a lamp or a doorknob or something like that and and you know for me it was like whoa why why is the camera kind of focusing on that and um somebody explained to me afterwards it was like well that happens often for victims is that in the middle of the traumatic situation that they're they are trying to escape mentally and emotionally from that situation. So they're looking at something else and they're focused on something else. And maybe that's going to be something that kind of lasts. And maybe over time that'll morph into something, mm-hmm. something else that, that, um, and I think you see that especially a lot with children. Okay. Um, I, I've heard stories of just children who have been sexually molested or sexually assaulted. They don't necessarily have words to describe what's happening. Yeah. Um, I think one, because they're young and they don't yeah. have the vocabulary, but two, because I think their mind protects them mm. um, by making them focus on, you know, something that's on the ceiling and it looks like a little horse or something. And so they might report the story of like, I remember playing horses with uncle Jim. Um, okay. And what they're trying to tell you is something traumatic. Um, yeah. But then it, it goes without anyone ever knowing um, until maybe they're much older and go through some counseling or therapy or something triggers it. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, that's definitely true. And that's leads to people not believing, especially older victims, um, because it's like, well, why don't you have a perfect memory of what happened? If it was really this big of an event, why don't you have a perfect memory? And it's like, well, it was so big yeah. that my mind protected myself because to really remember this whole thing would be so traumatic for my well-being that yeah. I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't remember the whole thing yeah, and the science backs it up yeah in terms of uh, what typical neurological responses are to trauma I think another thing that people often question um, a victim's story is why didn't you fight back why didn't you run I think a lot of us are familiar with the with the discussion about fight or flight when there's mm-hmm. a situation in which mm-hmm. in which uh, you feel threatened it's like you might fight, you might run, um, but there's actually a third option that's very frequent also, and scientists can tell us that it's not just fight or flight, it's also freeze. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that neurologically, people don't really have a lot of control over what they do, whether they fight back, whether they try to run, whether they just simply freeze. Um, 
not all of those are very common responses to mm-hmm. to a threat. It doesn't mean that the person who freezes is um, somehow deficient in because they didn't fight back. Yeah. Um, that they need to feel guilty that they did yeah. because there's not a lot of control that they consciously have over that kind of thing happening. And so when people ask. You know, why didn't you run or fight back? They, you must have, there must be something wrong with this person's story because they, yeah. because they just, you know, they went along with kind it. Kind of laid there, standing there. Or, yeah. 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 And, and that's, and the freeze is a very common response to trauma also. Yeah. yeah. I think in the majority of the, the stories I've heard of sexual assault, the majority of the reaction is freeze. Okay. Um, where, women i've heard especially where it's like a guy comes up and grabs their behind or touches them in a way or starts doing something and they remember saying like i don't know what happened but i couldn't move like and i couldn't say anything to stop him so it was almost like he took it as she's consenting because she's not saying anything yeah um which is why again consent is so important because just because they're not saying anything doesn't mean it's because they're in the moment and they want to be sexy. It could be literally the nervous system taking over. Yes. And they're literally just freezing. Yes. Um, and, yeah, I, I'm going to bring on someone, for those who are listening right now, to talk about trauma and sexual abuse um, and get more into that um, because I think it will really help break through some of the, the stigmas and stereotypes you're talking about, about, like, well, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't yeah. you run? Why didn't you fight? Because um, people just don't understand. We, we know fight or flight, but we don't realize that freeze yeah. is a part of the ballgame, um, yeah. a very big prevalence of part of the ballgame. Yeah. Um, so moving from that, uh, I know I went to a Christian university, I'm still at a Christian university, and I've been a part of Christian churches, and we had the Church 2 movement, um, and people just – in Christian circles especially, just don't feel like this is happening as prevalent. Um, they think maybe if it's one to five in culture, it's only one to 30, one out of every 30 in the church. Um, but I know you <laughs> you would say otherwise. So Yeah, it, 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 happens, it happens everywhere. Um, I, I would hope that Christian settings, people in Christian settings, just by looking at the news over the last couple of years, would would have seen examples of prominent examples of places that it it happens um i mean just within the last several months um good reporting by the houston chronicle and san antonio express news houston's where i grew up and Mm -hmm. but these papers who have looked at the southern baptists and just yep and this is not even just alleged things these are things that were documented in court mm-hmm. records and, and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, just the number of of victims and perpetrators that um, you know all across you know the Southern Baptist uh, movement. You know, if if it happens in churches, it's going to happen at Christian colleges. There's mm-hmm. nothing you know that. Um, <clears throat> and for those who are unaware of what Eugene is referring to right now, there is a report that came out uh, about the Southern Baptist Convention and some of their handling of pastors that was pretty eerily similar to what happened with the Catholic Church in like the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, but it didn't get as much 
press conference and news um, yeah. as the Catholic Church one did. And maybe it wasn't as egregious in some things, but it was still like over 300 plus it pastors, was, I think. And that's and those are, again, just the, the, the things that you can really document. Yeah, it, the ones I mean, that we know for sure where they were convicted. And so they moved them to a different church or they ended up taking a job somewhere else. And no one told that church about these things. And, um, because the Southern Baptists, I mean, a lot of Protestantism is very decentralized. And so mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know. We does, we wash our hands of this person. They were terrible. They did something bad, and then it's somebody else's problem. Yeah. Um, as opposed to like in the Catholic Church, where where there was more ecclesiastic ecclesial mm-hmm. structure to move somebody from. They, one place the Catholic to Church was more moving, where the Southern Baptist was more just not notifying yeah. a lot of the time the new churches they got to that there was you know this previous incident with them. Yeah, and friends of mine like Ashley Easter, who lives in North Carolina, or Jules Woodson, um, who's told her story to the New York Times. Um, they've been pressing, you know, the SBC for come up with a database, come up with a central mm-hmm. record so that we can keep mm-hmm. track of these people. Um, mm-hmm. And there is some resistance because the autonomy of the local church being one of the, I mean, I used to pastor in a Southern Baptist church and that's a big deal, you know, mm-hmm. the, the autonomy of the local congregation. And, you know, it's like to hell with that. I mean, yeah. it's, it's the autonomy of the local church does not mean that, that we have no responsibility to, to have to keep accountable local churches and um, yeah. that doesn't that doesn't mean that you're giving up um, the connection that your church has with the Holy Spirit um, so it, it happens I mean if you want to talk about college college campuses I, I think Baylor is is a is a is a really prominent example of it not just happens there it's been egregious in mm-hmm. terms of mm-hmm. of staff, covering up and enabling um and people might say well okay well that's that's athletics and that's you know that's coaches who are trying to protect their players and Mm -hmm. and um okay you know say that is the case but if you look at every every school that receives federal funds has to report Mm-hmm. You know, annually, um, the number of incidents that takes pl- that that take place on their campus mm-hmm. that involve sexual assault, that involve rape, yeah. and so you go to any school that does, you know, does have to file those what's called a Clery report, C L E R Y, and mm-hmm. some of that is also like fire safety. So there's mm-hmm. those reports usually have different sections, but um, it happens in all kinds of Christian schools, and you'll you'll find even if it's a couple of them. Knowing that there are, you know, a minority of incidents are reported. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember the the percentage, but it's it's low. It's a minority of the. A lot more times things happen that aren't reported. And so, mm-hmm. if you extrapolate from that, then you know the 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 small handful of reports or incidents that a college, a Christian college, even will have over the course of say a few years. You, know, you multiply that by by the the number by the percentage that underreporting takes place mm-hmm. then you've got even more and so it, it happens at every place yeah. and, and the christian school sometimes people are especially afraid to come forward because 
maybe, you know, that, that means if they have to talk about, well, okay, so we've been having sex uh, or we have been, yep. you know, physically intimate, maybe not to the point of sex, but then he wanted to take it there and that's why I'm reporting it now. Mm-hmm. And then they have to talk about that and they're afraid, well, what does that mean on the conduct code? I signed this thing. Which is a big thing at BYU recently. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It, it's not just at, um, you know, evangelical schools, but it's at other places mm-hmm. where they have a conduct code or, or maybe... There was alcohol involved, and they they're, they're worried about you know bringing that forward. And some Christian schools have made it very clear that if something happens, and you come you come to you know the school staff to report it, that that you won't get in trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, for, we're not going to go and talk to your parents and say that they did this, mm-hmm. um, or that you're not going to be disciplined for having been drinking when you signed the code saying you're not that yeah that uh, we're not going to take that opportunity to you know come down on you for that when obviously you know there's been something that that happened that yeah it's, it's of much greater significance and and so that i mean christian schools who are putting that message out there that's the right thing to do mm-hmm. um because you want people to feel free even if they were doing something that they said that they weren't going to do you know, they they need to have that freedom to come forward and talk about that as part of the report and mm-hmm. and uh, to not be afraid of retribution or yeah you know, of of them becoming the person that gets focused on yeah um, you know or even to say okay he shouldn't have pushed you on that but you shouldn't have been drinking yeah uh, and somehow that there's some kind of moral moral equivalence there yeah um, and that makes me think that probably on Christian universities and Christian churches. The underreporting might be even be a higher percentage, yeah. Because it, you're admitting to sin in a yes. sense, um, which yeah. I, especially in cases of it's just sexual assault. I mean, sure, maybe drinking, whatever. But when it's just sexual assault, the the double edged sword is that not only was I abused, but also I committed the sin of having premarital sex. Yeah. And it so it leads to double shame. Um, yeah. When it's like, no, that that was not a sin. Like you didn't consent to having sex so therefore yeah. that's not premarital sex that was premarital abuse yeah. which was done to you yeah um and i think it has to lead to to more underreporting on christian places than others and i don't know because I, I haven't seen research that 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 gives us and it'd uh, be hard to to really measure underreporting. i feel like and, i mean it would be something that hopefully some good researchers are working on yeah but it it, it does make me wonder if if there are contexts like that where there are conduct codes that are in place, I'm not saying conduct codes themselves are inherently bad, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Um, it does make me wonder as to, you know, when we think about um, faith-based schools where they often have these codes, is the underreporting even greater because, you know, that, that they have, they're having to admit to something, that, something else that they did that they maybe, they didn't, uh, they said they wouldn't, do yeah. um, when they sign on to the onto the the conduct code, yeah. Um, so it's 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 hard to know for sure if it's more, but I I wonder also if it's if it's a higher yeah. rate of underreporting. Yeah. So it it happens happens everywhere. I mean, I, a friend of mine, Boz Chavijan, um, he's he's part of that. He's part of the greater extended Billy Graham family. Billy Graham's mm-hmm. his grandfather, and Boz Chavijan, he's a he's a law professor. Uh, at Liberty University, mm-hmm. and uh, he's a former prosecutor, and um, so he leads an organization called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in the Christian Environment, and he 
he says, you know, the problem among Protestants could be even greater than among mm-hmm. the Catholic Church because we don't have as much, you know, centralized record keeping. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can't just assume that because, you know, we as, and now I'm kind of adding my own commentary now, we can't assume that just because as evangelicals we've really emphasized why wait and things like mm-hmm, that, that mm-hmm. or purity ceremonies and purity rings and, and that we have a high you know sexual ethic that, mm-hmm. that things are any different. Um, mm-hmm. We can't. And we've, you know, just because we've emphasized abstinence and things like that, that, um, you know, it, we can't assume that, uh, in fact, we should assume nothing that the new the news has told us that um it happens in christian environments and if it happens in numerous churches it's going to be happening on christian campuses and the numbers and the reporting that schools have to do you know is there you know is there is the evidence for it and if it's underreported then it's going to be happening even more than than what they yeah. say and baylor is is a, is a prime example there are others if you go through title nine um, I think it's the Chronicle of Higher Education that they, I, I haven't looked at it in a, in a year or so, but they kept a database of, of all the Title IX complaints that were out there. And there were several Christian schools on there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to mention any because I can't remember for sure. <laughs> I don't want to badmouth the school <laughs> if they're not. But there were other Christian schools that are, are well known that were on there mm-hmm. as well. And, mm-hmm. and yes, just because a Title IX complaint was filed doesn't mean that necessarily um, that something happened there. But I, my default setting is to give people who come forward um, the benefit of the doubt. And, yeah. And there were, you know, several Christian schools, you know, small liberal arts schools that, you know, they they were complaint. They'd filed a complaint about the school not responding well by law to as they should have been to somebody who'd been victimized yeah so so eugene we've talked about a lot we talked about a lot of what this is why it pertains to different things um how can we help victims um how can we help change the culture um around this i think one of the first just vis-a-vis somebody who's coming forward or who's telling them your story um, one of the most powerful things that we can say to them is, uh, I believe you, hmm. I'm with you, um, um, I, I'll do whatever needs to be done to, to help support you in this. And, and that is hugely powerful for mm-hmm. um, assault survivors um, who are often not believed or who are treated with skepticism or whose other people's first reaction is, what were you wearing? Why were you dating mm-hmm. that person? I told you not to. And, mm-hmm. But to just simply to, to say, I believe you. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, and to really, really go um, in terms of supporting the survivor is to, to not pressure them to do anything that they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. The best thing often is not going to be going to the police. Mm-hmm. Um, that has to be left up to the discretion of the person who is the victim, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's they want to go to the police, whether they eventually want to file a Title IX complaint or something like that, whether they want to see anybody or talk to somebody and mm-hmm. who they talk to if they do. 
um, a therapist, whether it's you know somebody on campus or off, that's that's got to be their decision, and it cannot be something that mm-hmm. you know that you receiving that story from somebody. Um, you can't be the one to to assume that you know better what's what's best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they've had their power taken away from them, and it doesn't help them for you to kind of badger them into one mm-hmm. course of action or the, or even worse, perhaps doing it for them and making a report on their behalf because you think that's the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. They have to be the ones. If you don't report the police, somebody else is going to be victimized. Okay, that's that may be a true statement, but it's not for you to go mm-hmm. and report, especially because you go to the police and if a person wants to keep it confidential, a police report is inherently not going to be confidential. Mm-hmm. Um, if a person files a report that they were assaulted, um, you know, that that person's name does become a matter of record, and mm-hmm. uh, the Title IX process is is frequently not going to retain confidence. Also, if it goes mm-hmm. to a certain degree, mm-hmm. um, usually, if a person wants to talk to a therapist, um, I mean, the therapist is bound by by law to hold it in confidence, and um, so I mean, those are things that um, if you could, if you have a friend who comes to you and says they've been assaulted, you could help them to explore what are their options, but mm-hmm. um, you can never make that decision for them. Um, I'm, I'm speaking as if, if that person is an adult. If that person mm-hmm. is a minor, then there's a whole different different framework that we have to work with, and, and that gets into whether, you know, mandated reporting, and I know you'll have somebody else to, mm-hmm. to talk about mm-hmm. uh, abuse of minors and things like mm-hmm. that. But if it is a somebody who's an adult, then that's, you know, that, that is their prerogative. Even if it's something that happened when they were children um, and now they're adults, um, that's for them to decide what they want to do with that. And mm-hmm. they may not want to talk about it with anybody. That's their, mm-hmm. that's their, their, their call. I think those are two huge ways to support survivors. I think um, f- just generally as, I mean, most men are not going to be people who perpetrate, you know, power-based violence against somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and we want to be helpful. and We don't know how to be frequently. Um, I mean, a lot of times in in violence prevention work, we talk about being helpful bystanders um if we are in a situation where we see something happening that looks kind of mm, i don't know you know maybe we're at you know whether it's at a restaurant or a bar or a party and it looks like um gosh that somebody is really uncomfortable with what this guy is doing um that he looks like he perhaps he's taken it in, but I don't want to get involved. I don't know mm-hmm, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, to 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 say let's let's figure out to, to to figure out how to step into that situation, to to trust your gut and to to maybe find somebody who knows them and to just step into that situation and to even interrupt it. It doesn't have to be hey what 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 the hell are you doing there? Mm-hmm. Just even to simply figure out a way to. Yeah. To to enter into that space and interrupt it, whether if you know somebody who knows them, hey, let's that could be somebody to bring along and to to say to check on someone. So say, hey, how you doing? You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't know where you were for a while and and uh, just wanted to make sure that we 
we we were we were sure who's mm-hmm. when we were leaving together um or even uh, if if something is if you sometimes just interrupting a situation with a a a false made up sort of accident like yeah. walking along and pretending that you stumble and spill <laughs> um, spill your drink onto the person who you know yeah. just just yeah. who's who's um, who seems like they're up to no good um, that can be something to or even to cause a distraction um, yeah. to um, say it's not even somebody that you're present with but some you hear something happening next door and it doesn't sound that good and um, but because of the thin walls you you, you know that um, there's you just got a really bad feeling it's like, you know, hey, be a pest, you know, go knock on the door and say, hey, dude, I wanted to return your your thing, um, <laughs> your, you know, the, the, the spice I borrowed or whatever, yeah. just to interrupt the situation mm-hmm. and giving you a chance to decide if there's something further that maybe you could step into and mm-hmm. and to to impose yourself. And, and those are ways of being bystanders that um, there is, you know something uncomfortable about it but there is an opportunity to to enter that space and to mm-hmm. uh, one person i know said that when sometimes the situation is more obvious there's an intoxicated girl and she's being taken advantage of he's starting to walk off with her out the door or upstairs to a to a to a bedroom um and if you have that bad feeling inside then you should because um there's yeah. a good chance something bad's going to happen he's going to take advantage of her and by you know by definition somebody who's intoxicated cannot give consent mm-hmm. uh, just because she's been drinking and drinking a lot doesn't mean that um, she set herself up for it yeah um so it's like well one person has told me that what they like to do is say dude they're taking your car um they're towing your car and, and that often gets the person's attention it's like what oh yeah. nuts my car and yeah. and so that you know that that uh, that can interrupt a situation yeah um so it can be a very direct it could be very direct what the hell are you doing get away from her or it could be just creating some kind of distraction to to step into that space and interrupt it at the very least so you can evaluate it or even just finding somebody who knows these folks you know are they okay and 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 using that as a springboard to yeah to be a helpful bystander i think um from a standpoint of even just overall um, when when men are hanging around it's just to it can be something um, a good step even just to um, to if somebody's talking about women in a degrading way yeah to to call that out and say dude that's not cool mm-hmm. um, I saw a tweet uh, I think it was yesterday where this girl tweeted and she said guys if I asked for your phone right now and look through your all guys group chat, what would I see? Okay. Um, which I think is, it's a helpful one. I mean, honestly, most of the time it's probably harmless. So it's happening in a guys group chat. It's probably about food or sports or something. Yeah. Um, but there's a good amount of time where I think what you're talking about is like locker room talk and yeah. not to get into what the president has said or yeah. whatever. But I think yeah. it's a good example. Like we all accepted, well, not all of us, but the nation mostly accepted that he made this very sexual salty sexual violence statement yeah um and like made it with confidence and bravado yeah and we as a nation at least half of us brushed it aside as just okay like locker room talk yeah and it's like that's that shouldn't be okay no um at all 
Yeah, it's it's because that to me perpetuates the idea that that um, men can feel entitled towards women, mm-hmm. and, and often we that that's an element of what those of us who work in the space often call rape culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not saying that every man is a potential rapist, but yeah. it's it rape culture is is just the stuff in our social environment that that fosters or gives you know a fertile soil for for some people to feel like they can act out or that mm-hmm. they are entitled to a woman's body regardless of whether she yeah. wants it or not and which is so, really good because i think they'll be like well this person said that but they would never they would never do that but that's not the point the yeah. point is that you're empowering someone who might do that by making this an okay statement or okay yeah. thing to joke about so that someone can actually go act on it. So even if that, we're not calling that person who makes that comment a, a rapist, yeah. but they could be emboldening, empowering, yes. and contributing to a culture that yes. allows rape to happen and we kind of just turn a blind eye to it. it. It shows, I mean, comments like that show deep down what a person thinks about women. Mm-hmm. And it fosters the, the, the rape culture as, as well. Um, even something like, I remember in seminary, this is, so this I was in, I was in an all guys dorm and those were some fun years. Mm-hmm. I remember watching uh, it was a hockey game and um, and there were a bunch of us around. Maybe it was the Olympics or something and and um, and there was you know one one of the guys um, said was yelling at this player on TV saying, "Dude, you're such a woman mm-hmm. for you know for being weak and not being aggressive in that play." Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. I should have said something. I didn't say anything. Nobody said anything. Nobody called it out, and we just kept right on going. And and partly because we were like, "Oh, that's just him. He says those kinds mm-hmm. of things." But that's not that. You know, looking back, that was a mistake on my part. I mm-hmm. did not step into that space, even if it didn't have to. I didn't have to make a big fuss about it. I could have said, "Dude, that's not cool." Mm-hmm. Um, and that itself would have been a way of helping to push back on on the sense that women are inferior and and weaker and that um, and that we can see them that way or to use the term woman as an insult or to mm-hmm. use uh, a woman's body part as an insult like mm-hmm. you know, don't be such a pussy mm-hmm. um, why are we using body parts things that God created as as um, as insults, mm-hmm. um, that's that's all part of um, part of this social environment that makes some people feel like it's okay to take advantage of a woman, or even to there. It, it's 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 a, it's not a big step to go from guys talking about women in that way when it's just guys around, but it's it's not a big step to go from that to to catcalling women as they're walking by mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or to giving a whistle as they walk by, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm, check that out. And, mm-hmm. um, don't think that that's complimenting the woman. They're going to go, go away feeling like these guys thought I was hot, and sexy. And so I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, she feel more times, more often they're going to feel demeaned. Mm-hmm. Um, like you saw me walking down the street and I couldn't get by without you guys making comments. There's a gal I knew, at a local university it wasn't wasn't biola but uh, she lived like a couple blocks from the university and she said but i drive to school and i said is it because you get cat calls she said yeah Mm -hmm. you know she drives to school a couple of blocks because on the way between her residence and the campus 
if there's she's gonna hear from somebody whistling at her or saying something that she's fine or mm-hmm. or smile for me baby just you know this this the sexual harassment that is very much a part of so many women's mm-hmm. you know day in day out day out existence I, I think even just for men to be aware um, and this is true of men and women we we all have to be aware that in any given space there are very likely going to be sexual assault survivors around yeah and yeah. and w- so if we talk about um people in an objectifying way or that puts people down because of their gender or or even that that um is is very cavalier about oh man they're just they're just making up those stories because because uh, they're they're after bill cosby's money or something mm-hmm. like that or or they're just trying to bring down the president. Um, those kinds of things can be very triggering for sexual assault survivors who are sitting around mm-hmm. uh, them. Um, Which I, is, I mean, that's something that's really, really stuck with me because it's like, okay, with all this accusations against accusations against Trump or against your favorite celebrity, or all these things. Realize who's in the room when you make the statement. Yeah, she's lying. She's in it for the money. Like, especially fathers, especially brothers, there's a good chance, uh, maybe, that your daughter or sister or friend who's a girl has been sexually assaulted and hasn't told anyone. Yeah. And now by making this comment, you are now telling her she is not safe with you. Yeah. And if you are a a brother and a a husband or a father, and that doesn't break you to the heart that you're, like, one of the girls in your life that you love so much wouldn't feel comfortable with you— then maybe you need to kind of think more about how you're using your words yeah. and what rhetoric you're using around the situation. For sh- for sure. I mean, there because because broadening even beyond sexual violence, sexual violence, relationship violence, you know, dating violence, um, all those things are. So many people are affected by them, especially women, and so there are going to be survivors around. They it's just. You're just not aware of it, and and they may not want to tell you, as you know, somebody that's closer to them, um, and the damage that you can be doing by by making them feel less likely that uh, wanted to tell their story to anybody, much less you, mm-hmm. um, is is has a hugely potential you know chilling effect on on yeah. them and their own process of healing and things like that, like. I have many friends who are sexual assault survivors who feel very triggered by the whole thing surrounding Donald Trump during the campaign and the Access Hollywood, you mm-hmm. know, tape and, and all of that. And even more recently, the Judge Kavanaugh stuff, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. hugely triggered by it, not only because they see somebody who has been accused by multiple uh, folks of, of behaving badly towards them, but the responses that those people have elicited, um, and the you know this, the 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 skewering of these people and the assaults on their character, um, you know that that it's it's hugely re-traumatizing to them to experience these things in the news and the response that people have toward it, mm-hmm. and um, it's those are things that that you know people who. Or not themselves 
victims or survivors and if we want to talk about just men what we can can we do um to to help and we've been talking primarily about women and girls it's it's um we can watch our words carefully um mm-hmm. it, whether it's whether there are other whether there are girls and women in the room or even if it's just a group of men um our words make a difference and mm-hmm. um to 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 be willing to step in that space and i thinking about just groups of guys i i tend to feel like guys when it's just a group of guys talking that there's there's uh there's an insecurity that's built in we don't mm-hmm. want to be the mm-hmm. one that rocks the boat we don't want to be the one that goes against you know it the, seems weak or seems too sensitive or seems yeah, too fragile yeah like why do you care so much yeah. or things like that and and um those those are it those are those are things that we have to that we have an opportunity to be helpful bystanders whether it's you know we talked earlier about more active situations where something's happening but just even when something is not happening and it's just a conversation but to be men who honor women even in our conversation even when they're not around yeah um but that's that feels like the you know christian thing to do and i doubt that when it was just jesus and the disciples a group of guys sitting around that jesus was there bagging on women yeah and um you know because you see just his compassionate heart towards them and how he treated them and how he treated them better than their society and um yeah that that the the agape thing to do is is to is even when they're not around to to respect women and how we talk and and uh, to call out language that perpetuates women mm-hmm. as being weak or secondary or other. Yeah. Eugene, say a, say a sexual assault survivor was listening to this right now. What hope would you offer to them? I, I am not a sexual assault survivor myself. Mm-hmm. So... I wouldn't, I can't pretend to know what it feels like to go through that. Um, Whether it was something a long time ago or something recent. um, I would, I would want a survivor to hear from me first that, that I, I believe them that um, I will do whatever I can to support them uh, in their in in figuring out what their options are and if they want to do anything about it and if they don't that's 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 fine also um, I would want to help in terms of figuring out some of the options that are available um, whether there's some good therapists around that can help them talk through or if it's something that just happened, you know, where's a good rape crisis mm-hmm. uh, facility to go to, whether the YWCA or some, you know, some other um, in, uh, in Orange County, which is close to us. Um, Waymakers is a really good organization. But just, um, and as a, speaking from a Christian standpoint, um to to be able to offer 
the story of um, story of Tamar, Princess Tamar. I know there's more than one Tamar in the Bible, but Princess Tamar, daughter of daughter of King David. Um, there were so many people around her, um, Crown Prince Amnon, who violated her, hmm. um, but Prince Absalom, who seemed like he cared about her and took her into his 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 home, but who went off and wreaked revenge and really didn't give her what she needed. And then there was King David, who who knew about it, but didn't much do anything about it mm-hmm. um, other than get mad. Um, but it feels to me like from the biblical narrative, uh, because her, she's she's named as she's the only one of David's daughters that we know the name of, if I remember correctly. Um, and her story is written in such a way that I think you can really sense that the writer um, was reflecting God's heart of compassion for her. And um, so for somebody who's maybe listening, if you are a a rape or a survivor of sexual violence, um, I believe you and God believes you. God sees, God saw what happened your tears, what you've gone through, um, and he knows that it is not your fault. And he would say that you're not to blame, um, but that his heart for you is compassion and to support you and to these terrible things that have happened to you that even if they happen from somebody who was a part of of your spiritual life that that is not of God and that God condemns the evil that has happened toward you and that he wants to wrap you up in his loving arms and to um, support you all the way through it and to guide you through it and to, to help you to begin to heal um, from these things that have happened to you and and my hope is that there are other people around you who can surround you and be God's hands in, in terms of helping you to, to um, find practical help in, in, these, in this you know, situation that you're in um, and to incarnate Jesus to you. Um, so I, I hope that there would be a sense of that a survivor could, could could feel that from other people, from God, um, and just as much as I can offer a few words here, that um, that that's what I hope they can hear from me as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a beautiful note to end on, Eugene. So end right there. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. And as always, if you've enjoyed what you have heard today or enjoyed what this podcast is doing and what is it about, it would help us out greatly if you could leave us a review and if you could subscribe to the podcast. This helps us reach other people and this helps us fulfill what this podcast is ultimately trying to do, 
which is bring hope to those who are trapped, those who are struggling, and those who are wondering what to do with sexuality. As always, we want to make sure we clarify this episode may have triggered you sexually. It may have brought up old pain, old shame, or even old unhealthy sexual behavior. With all these things, we encourage you to tell someone about it. Don't keep it in. Don't walk alone. Invite people into your life. We hope that Eugene's words today blessed you, gave you a hope for your life, and gave you encouragement in your journey. And above all, we ask that the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound 